Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Fintech Show. I'm Ian Horn, and for today's episode, I'm going time-traveling with Roger Cameras, looking at the origin story of the internet and then discussing how we can catch the next wave of digital innovation. Now, Roger's story is a fascinating one. Uh, I'm mostly going to let him tell him tell it himself, but in the present day, uh, Roger is the founder and CEO of CIONet UK. Uh, in the wealth world, we're used to CIO, meaning Chief Investment Officer. In this instance, we're talking Chief Intelligence Officers and Pioneers in Digital Transfer. So CIO Net boasts Europe's largest CIO community with over 10,000 members. Uh, Roger, therefore, is a man at the cutting edge of information. Uh, we're going to discuss that later. The first big topic I'll get into is Roger's fascinating role in tech history. Uh, while he was a research fellow at MIT in Boston in the 70s, he was part of the team that worked on the design of the ARPANET, which was the precursor to what we now know as the internet. So Roger is one of the people who made the internet happen, uh, without which the entire world, I'm sure you'll agree, would be a hugely, hugely different place. Uh, there'd be a shortage of cat photos for starters, and there's half a chance people would still invite you around to look at their holiday photos. So that's a dystopia, and I'm sure you'll agree. So Roger, anyway, welcome to the FinTech Show. Uh, thank you for joining, joining me. And first question, what's on your mind today? Actually, when I look back over 20, 30 years of trying to predict the future, I actually begin to think we got it right, <laughs> but the future takes a long time to materialize. Mm -hmm. uh, I've always spent my life probably 20 years ahead of where we are, uh, <laughs> but I think actually we're catching up now. Yeah. Okay. So I, I mentioned your work on the ARPANET, and I, I have to learn more about that. That's absolutely fascinating stuff. Yeah. And firstly, I'll be honest, it's, it's before my time. So <laughs> what exactly was the ARPANET, and what were you trying to achieve when you, when you helped to build it? So, Ian, actually, in the early 70s, um, universities in the, in the States particularly were already communicating. They were sending files of data. They were sending emails together. And the, the U.S. military discovered this, I don't know, by accident or by, by design, and said, actually, we rather like what they're doing. Uh, we would like to have a data network which is infinitely expandable and indestructible. <laughs> And that they call the ARPANET. So that was the, really the first step towards what today is the internet. So the, a, a massive and indestructible thing, that is quite the, uh, the, the task to be given. Um, and obviously, it's, it, it's taken a life of its own. I mean, just, just what is the ARPANET in, within today's internet ecosystem? Where does it sit? <laughs> so in fact, the ARPANET has become the internet okay. uh, entirely. Uh, it was government-sponsored right from the start, uh, and I'm sure there are sort of shades of the internet which is still very secure and very mm -hmm. uh, purposed for the military. But essentially, it was liberated yeah. uh, out of its uh, military shell uh, and has become a completely global utility. And someone asked me recently, how many people does the internet employ? And I said, none. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone, you know, works on the internet, uh, but there really isn't, you know, there isn't an internet company. Mm. And isn't that just the perfect model for fintech? I, I can't help but think it is. Um, anyway, research from Statista in 2019, this was published this year though, shows that there are now 3.97 billion internet users worldwide. Uh, and that's just over half the population. It's 51.4%. 96% of Northern Europe has internet access. It stands to reason the rest of the world will uh, eventually catch up to some extent. So, Roger, did you ever think your, your work would be connected to such a revolution in, in how we all live? 
Uh, I don't think I even conceived of the scale, but I did have the vision. Uh, and I think in the 70s, everyone was rushing into the computer industry. Uh, that was the fashionable place to go. Telecom was a backwater. Uh, we've still had electromechanical switching equipment. Uh, and when I sort of saw the ARPANET and thought, what could this mean, not just for voice and telephony, but for data, for image, for virtual uh, communication, I realized this was actually much more profound, actually, than the computer itself. I thought mm -hmm. that if we had universal connectivity uh, in every shape and form, the world had to change. And for me, that was really the call to action. I was mm -hmm. just absolutely mesmerized. <laughs> Yeah, and, and we were discussing, you know, before we started recording this podcast, how how the kind of ARPA uh, situation came about because you were, you were in need of funding and there was a, a grant. So did you, 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 weren't, you weren't going looking for this, right? It was a, a thing that kind of, you, you stumbled upon it. Uh, completely. I actually went to MIT. I was unfunded. I had a place at Cambridge which had been fully funded. I took a big risk, which, I, by the way, I've done most of my <laughs> career. Uh, this was just the starting point. Uh, and I was desperate. So uh, when my professor actually came into my office and said, we have this uh, grant from ARPA, uh, this will pay for all your uh, educational fees. I almost sort of grabbed it by the <laughs> neck. <laughs> I was so uh, delighted at that. But of course, I was already involved in uh, network design. I was actually an expert in signal processing at the time, digital okay. signal. So it was a natural. Mm. And looking at what the internet's become, um, I'm, I'm going to get dystopian of it quite soon. But, but firstly, <laughs> you know, what, are you, what are you proudest of? You know, what, what, what achievements do you, do you look back on and think? I mean, obviously building the thing, but when you look at what the internet is now, you know, what, makes you, what makes you happy? Uh, I think it's actually giving the world access to almost unlimited knowledge. Uh, and actually, if you look back 500 years to the printing press, the printing press in its own right was a massive revolution. For the first time, the average person could read a book. Up to that time, the church had actually imposed a death sentence, even on owning a Bible. Wow. Uh, <laughs> so, seems counterintuitive. But yeah. It does. Okay. Uh, but, you know, that, that was power. You yeah. know, they wanted power. So when the printing press arrived, people, it would democratize knowledge. But I think the internet's gone much further. It's not only is it democratized knowledge, it's actually created a, a democracy of knowledge contributions. If you, if you take Wikipedia, anyone can contribute their knowledge to Wikipedia. It's a, a complete democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that gives us, as individuals right across the world, almost infinite access to knowledge. Uh, which I'm sure for the benefit of mankind is enormously important. And that goes way beyond communication. Mm -hmm. and, and is there anything you regret? Is there, are there any moments you, it, it seems weird saying that on a podcast, which is facilitated by the internet and so, so much of modern life is, uh, but are there any points where you think that maybe the internet is a destructive force? Yeah, I, I think it can distort. Uh, and uh, there are pl plenty of evidence today that the people who provide that knowledge, that information to us, like Google, like Netflix, like Amazon, uh, they are taking advantage of our own personal context. Mm -hmm. They're feeding us the information they think we want. Mm -hmm. So actually, is it really a de democracy in the internet? 
Uh, I think there's some really sinister yeah. <laughs> plays at foot here. Yeah, of course. I mean, there's issues with data privacy, uh, intrusiveness, as you yeah. as you touch upon, online fraud, scabbing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, do you think there was any way the internet could have been built differently, or at least regulated differently? Um, uh, very difficult to conceive of any other way. It is a global utility. That's mm. what it is. It's like water. It's like electricity. It's just there. Mm. And uh, instead of um, pushing uh, water or, or, or power, it's pushing uh, information. And, and so as a global utility, I think it works really well. Um, it's what we do with it. That's really the interesting challenge. Yeah, so we just need to trust humans, and that always <laughs> always goes swimmingly, doesn't it? <laughs> anyway, let's uh, let's look at your your more recent recent work. Um, because before the podcast, you sent me a, a copy of a blog post titled "Back to the Future," and actually, you were saying at the start of this podcast how you know what was on your mind was actually how much of the future you'd, you'd kind of guessed correctly in in the year two thousand, and, and no doubt earlier as well. Um, so this uh, blog post, this post that you sent me, looked at what the world looked like in two thousand, what it looks like today, I say today, it was 2020, it's 2021 now, uh, and also what the world might look like in 2040. Um, it's, a, it's a useful and concise overview of of what's likely to come next in digital innovation, actually. I would recommend that people listening do actually give it a read. Um, so I want to talk about the future, but first let's, let's look at those years between 2000 and 2020. Mm. Um, you know, so what? how has the world actually been digitally transformed in this time, uh, you know, and which developments are most significant? Which ones should we really take note of? So I think actually 2000 was a real turning point. I mean, this was the emerging era of e-commerce. And suddenly you had companies like Amazon uh, beginning to surface. Uh, and what they were saying basically is you can buy anything over the internet. Uh, you don't have to go to a physical store anymore. Uh, we'll deliver it to your door. Uh, and we'll provide all the sort of attractive content that will get you engaged and involved. So there was a whole mass of new companies formed during the 2000 period to take advantage of this. Most of them actually failed. Uh, Boo.com was one great example that I was personally involved with. Um, but there were a lot of successes. And today, uh, Amazon's about to take over Tesco in, uh, as the largest UK retailer. Uh, so the growth has been spectacular there, but that's e-commerce. Uh, the other three things which are really important, uh, first is the cloud. Mm -hmm. So cloud, again, is just a basic utility. It's a compute utility spread across the world today. Uh, without cloud, we could not have gone to work at home in the numbers that uh, we were able to do last March. Uh, it is an enabler of virtual working, uh, virtual everything. Uh, so cloud has become a, a massive platform worldwide on which the whole digital revolution is taking place. I think mobile is more fascinating, actually. Mobile means we can do anything we want, anywhere we want, whether we're attending a football match, we're banking, we are educating ourselves. Uh, as one person said to me in the 90s, home is where your media are. <laughs> uh, so you, the mobile platform provides us mm -hmm. with access to pretty much everything. We can conduct our business, et cetera. Uh, and of course, the other big uh, breakthrough, of course, has been social media. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, building those communities of all kinds, whether they're, whether it's Facebook or it's 
very narrowly focused forums. I think the latter are fascinating, uh, which will bring bring us to a, an, a, another key discussion about the future. Great, and and as you say, we should look at the future. Uh, you know, your subheading for where we'll be at in 2040 in your blog is hyper-personalization and smart everything, which is a nice way of summing it up. And you mentioned how uh, the next wave, the second wave of digital technologies will arrive, uh, and that's things like the Internet of Things, artificial intelligence, machine learning, blockchain, uh, full adoption of 5G, uh, and, and 3D printing. And this is all stuff that exists now, but obviously it will really properly have its impact. Um, so what does that all really mean? You know, can, can you unpack that for me, Roger? Because there's a lot going on. <laughs> of course. So I think the first thing is that uh, intelligence will be embedded in everything around us, whether it's the watch we're wearing, the home we're living in, uh, the city that we're uh, driving through. Uh, intelligence will be everywhere. And intelligence will be collecting information about everything we do, uh, even perhaps everything we think about. Uh, so this is a, a potentially vast invasion into our personal privacy, but it does have benefits uh, as well as downside. So I think the, the connected world in that sense uh, enables us to amass vast amounts of information about you or I personally. Uh, and this is what I call hyper-personalization. Uh, this gives vendors of services, of experiences, real insight into what we really want, what we really need, whether it's healthcare uh, and are we healthy today? Will we be healthy in the future? Uh, devices today can predict exactly what's going to happen mm -hmm. to us. Where we go on holiday, uh, what we want to learn about, uh, how we make money to uh, invest for our uh, future, all of these things are hyper-personalized. They're no longer mass markets. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really where the big breakthroughs are coming uh, on how we amass the data, how we make sense of the data, uh, how we use data as predictive uh, knowledge. Mm -hmm. and, and it's funny because you mentioned earlier on about you know democratization uh, and how you know the, the proliferation of the internet has actually maybe led people to you know, sharing views that they maybe might not have had or, you know, people are more easily controlled, perhaps, maybe manipulated if you want to be really <laughs> bleak with it. Um, so does hyper-personalization actually kind of amplify the problem? Does it, does it lead to a situation where none of us actually explore beyond our own, you know, immediate horizons? I think that the, uh, the data that is now being amassed will give us new perspectives. Uh, I think we all spend much of our lives trying to make sense of who we are, mm -hmm. uh, what do we like, what what really is important to us. Uh, you know, I've, I'm over seventy today. I still can't really tell you about <laughs> who I am. Uh, Google might have a better understanding, uh, perhaps. Uh, but I think this is all part of the human experience of you know how do we really understand the things that are important to us, uh, and we need to interact with people outside, whether it's family, it's communities, or it's those magical <laughs> digital leaders out there, uh, we need a sounding board. Uh, mm -hmm. And I think as information becomes more and more personalized, that sounding board becomes more and more effective. But there is a warning sign, of course. Yeah. It can be manipulated. It can be distorted. Uh, just watch out when you <laughs> next Google as to what the answer will be or mm -hmm. the, the moment you ask for your uh, uh, next 
Netflix uh, movie, mm -hmm. uh, what would come up on the screen for you? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't want to admit, Roger, but <laughs> honestly, it's, it's rom-coms mostly, if anyone, if anyone really wants to know. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um, look, another fascinating element of your vision in your work, um, this has nothing to do with rom-coms, um, is <laughs> your work encapsulates, you know, demographics and broader social trends. Now, uh, I'm going to paraphrase your own work to you in a desperate bid to sound intelligent and informed. Um, so by 2040, you mentioned that the global population will stabilise at around 8.5 billion people, uh, with nearly 3 billion living in Africa alone. Uh, emerging economies will represent two-thirds of global GDP, and 80% of the global population will live within 1,000 cities. And you also anticipate a growing gap uh, in, in wealth between the rich and the poor. Um, so let's be positive first. I keep doing positive and then negative. I think it seems quite a, a nice format to run with. Um, the lockdown's taught many people that they can work remotely, uh, and you're describing momentous shifts in how the world is, is going to work. So firstly, how should how should business leaders, because our, our listeners will be across the wealth, advice, you know, general financial services, uh, fintech spectrum, how should these people um, reshape their businesses? Uh, provided, of course, they, they stand to benefit from hyper-personalization and hyper-globalization. Yeah, I, I actually foresaw actually uh, in 2000, the, the, the economies of the world will actually polarize in two directions. In one direction, we'll have major mass, massive platforms like AWS, like mm -hmm. Azure, like Salesforce, uh, big global utilities that will provide the foundation stones for businesses so that businesses actually can start in one room and scale up to global proportions in days mm -hmm. and weeks rather than years. So that, that's the, the, the foundation stone. But on top of those basic utilities, we'll see lots and lots of small, highly innovative companies, which will be very volatile. They'll come and they'll go. Uh, I, I, I love uh, Hopin, uh, example uh, founded by a 25-year-old student. Uh, he's now 27. He's worth billions. Uh, it's a global company. Uh, it's based actually in London, although he doesn't have an office. <laughs> and he employs 500 people. I don't think he knows where they are. Uh, but that's just typical. He could not have done that without those global platforms. So I think that, that polarization become even more distinct. Why is that important for wealth management? Uh, if you want dividends, go to the global platforms. Mm -hmm. They're the utilities. They're like the electric and power companies of tomorrow. Uh, and they'll provide you with a steady, uh, reliable flow of dividends. If you want capital growth and you want to take risk, then there's going to be more and more IPOs, uh, more and more SPACs, more and more mm. uh, uh, meme, <laughs> meme <Yeah>. companies. <laughs> uh, there's going to be a vast array of high-risk, high-return opportunities. So that's the way the world will polarize. Uh, mm. And I think you can see from a portfolio point of view, I was just listening to an investor last night. He said 5% uh, in cash, 5% in gold, 5% in cryptocurrencies uh, and 5% in, what was the other one, uh, uh, commodities. Mm -hmm. Interesting. We, yeah, absolutely. And, and the, the thing is, <laughs> you, you were touching on what this means for investors. Yeah. And you know, what, what you're saying actually is, is largely quite sensible sounding stuff. Um, to, to go for the kind of moonshot pie in the sky mm -hmm. stuff instead, which is always good fun. Um, <laughs> you know, if someone gave you a kind of 
magical kind of lottery win fund yeah. and you could invest yeah. in a handful of developments right now maybe not specific companies but mm. you know trends yeah. what, what would you be putting your money in um so just at christmas i published uh, a blog called east beats west uh i, I uh, you've mentioned that uh something like 70 percent of the world economy will be uh, emerging nations uh, or asian nations probably uh within the next 10 20 years uh, i put a lot of money into china uh, and into a lot of other emerging economies particularly africa i think africa has enormous potential I put money in 20 years ago, lost it all, <laughs> and into China. Uh, but I would actually repeat it today. I think those uh, those two areas have enormous potential. I think the West will continue, uh, but growth is minuscule. Uh, productivity has flatlined. I think we're really not uh, progressing at the rate that the emerging economies are likely to progress. Yeah, I'd like to pick up on that. Actually. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, because uh, basically, if you look at our FTSE 100, mm. which, by the way, collectively is worth less than Apple, uh, it's mining companies, it's big mm -hmm. banks, it's oil companies. These are old heritage organizations. They are highly structured, uh, very slow moving, really incapable of innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, they just don't provide the environment to take risk, yeah. uh, to move with the times. Uh, they'll gradually fade out. Uh, my personal desire would be to see the FTSE uh, in, by 2030 being occupied at least 50% by digital leaders, mm -hmm. homegrown digital leaders, such as Okado, such as uh, Checkout. Mm -hmm. These are the companies that could be a $100 billion to $200 billion companies uh, within 10 years. Uh, they're going to eclipse Shell and Unilever and BP and Lloyds Bank for good reason. Mm -hmm. uh, essentially, those companies are essentially government departments. Yeah. And do, do you think that enough is being done to encourage that transition from you know, legacy industries? Do you think the government... <laughs> let's blame the government here. Is the government doing enough? Uh, good question. Uh, actually, we just launched uh, Digital Britain in May, uh, and we essentially uh, called for action across government, academia, and industry. So it's not just industry. Uh, mm. Academia has to produce the innovators and entrepreneurs, which it's not doing today. Uh, no real interest there. Uh, government could be a, um, uh, an investor, and it, for example, has just invested in OneWeb, which mm. uh, is one of only two low-orbit satellite companies in the world. Uh, it's competing directly with Elon Musk and uh, Skyline. So yes, government can help. Uh, all three have got to get together. No single component can do it by themselves. And yes, of course, we've got to make the UK and particularly London attractive to entrepreneurs, which I think it is, but also attractive to investment uh, and investment at scale, uh, which mm. we aren't seeing today. That's the big problem. We can see one million billion dollar companies emerging, even 10 or 20 billion, but they all go and, uh, and float on NASDAQ. Mm -hmm. Why can't they? Why can't we provide the liquidity in this country to actually maintain them at home? 
Yeah, that's a fascinating point. I mean, again, you mentioned investing, you know, the government being an investor. You, you do wonder if the future kind of sovereign wealth fund would be a tech yep. fund rather than being an oil fund, as it you know, historically kind of seems to be. Uh, one last thing here. Um, I said I'd do some, some negative stuff around the demographics. And sure. I, I think the wealth gap has to be an obvious thing that's, that you've pointed out in your work. Um, Firstly, is it unavoidable? Is it just an un- unfortunate consequence of development, or is there something we can do to stop this happening? I think there's two pi- points here. Firstly, uh, what is wealth? <laughs> and I would define wealth as well-being. I don't think all the billionaires in this world uh, would regard their lives as well-being. Uh, they, it's a struggle to be a billionaire. I think uh, the fact that the internet has opened up so much access to knowledge and experience uh, there's an almost infinite fund of wealth available to every one of us, regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our education. It's all there. Uh, I think the second very interesting point I made about platforms and innovative companies, I think we're actually returning back to the village. <laughs> uh, but it's the virtual village. And what we'll see in the future is uh, artisans who will perfect all the new technologies like 3D printing, uh, design, virtual reality, uh, to be able to produce and craft all sorts of new experiences and all sorts of new products uh, in a way that the village craftsmen would have done so two or 300 years ago. And they will be able to produce vast amounts of individual wealth. Uh, By using these global platforms, uh, immediately they'll have uh, scale and scope. If they produce something attractive, they'll be able to build uh, large volumes of sales very, very quickly. So I think that the the whole equality issue today is probably transitory. I mm-hmm. think that there will be a lot more, <laughs> a lot more wealthy people, uh, but there will be artisans, uh, wealthy artisans in the new uh, virtual village. Mm-hmm. And actually, I said I'd ask you like one last question, but I actually have another one. Yes. You've turned up with an Oculus. So can you, can you explain, explain why you've brought that along today and, and also your kind of vision for the future with that? So this is a device which is $300. Uh, it's attached directly to the internet. Uh, and while I was sitting at home for the last 15 months, I actually climbed Everest. Uh, I, I took a drink in a bar in Tokyo in a nightclub. Uh, I, I've done many things. Um, this is the starting point for virtual the virtual world. Uh, And again, within 10 years, we will genuinely be in two places at once. Uh, We'll have the full experience, uh, central experience of being in different places. And what's more interesting, we'll actually be able to profile our own ourselves to be whatever we want. (laughs) So by that stage, I'll be in my 80s. Perhaps I'll revert back to my 30s. (laughs) (laughs) And I'll be talking to people in their 20s and 30s. Uh, It will be a synthetic environment, but it will be highly entertaining. (laughs) Uh, And I've often said to my wife, I'm really looking forward to retirement. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, is it it actually that satisfying? Is it not fairly hollow in some respects, knowing that it's all an illusion, (laughs) you know? it's interesting. Uh, it it might in some ways be an illusion, but in reality, it becomes more and more close to uh, the experiences, the the quality uh, mm. of what we'll see and what we'll feel and hear will be so ninety nine percent 
real um, in, in the way that if you just look at TV today, the, the, the 4K uh, experience is pretty good uh, and it will only get better. Uh, and I think we're going to see that in virtual reality. But if I can get, come back to one other really salient factor in, in 2040, I mentioned the virtual village. Yes. Uh, I think that cities will change out of all recognition. Uh, already we're seeing companies like The Collective bringing young people together in high-rise buildings, most of which would have traditionally been offices, which would be co-residential uh, uh, buildings uh, where people will work, socialize, and live. Uh, and so you may have a thousand people uh, in, in a single building in London, it will in its own right now be a village and it will be totally connected <laughs> to the rest of the world. Uh, and if we have another pandemic, we just throw away the key. <laughs> uh, and actually, again, vertical farming is a big industry which is just beginning to show uh, its, its head um, because, again, cities will have to become self-sustaining. Mm. Uh, we'll have to be able to grow the food, uh, create the energy uh, and the water to sustain life uh, where we have tens, if not uh, hundreds of millions of people coexisting. But this is, uh, uh, I think, a real possibility by 2040. Wow. Well, that is a real look into the future. Um, look, Roger, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, genuinely. But thank you for such a great conversation. That was that was really enlightening. It's a real privilege as well to speak to one of the pioneers of the internet. Um, really amazing. And also so intriguing to get a better understanding of where technology is is, is heading. Um, and our, listening, our listeners from across financial service, I'm sure uh, they're primarily in wealth advice and fintech. Uh, I think everyone, everyone will have learned something from this. So, so Roger, thanks again for joining me. And, and I hope you will join me for the next episode of The Fintech Show, uh, where I'll be speaking to Clara Girotti, a leading technology strategist who's advised some of the world's leading C-suite executives on how to adjust their strategy and leadership to accommodate automation and AI. Thank you very much, Ian. <laughs>